And today, uh, we're beginning our new summer series of messages. So if you haven't been here in a while, or you're visiting, you got here just in time, we're starting a new series of messages. Now, for those of you who've been here over the last few months, I want you to know we're not stopping 1 Corinthians. We're just pausing in 1 Corinthians. We went through the first two chapters. We're going to pick up again after we get through our summer uh, this year and beginning in chapter 3 and just continue our verse-by-verse walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. But we're going to take a little bit of a break. And I decided to call this series this summer, uh, True Answers to Tough Questions. And I gave you some preview last week about this series and the subjects that I'm going to deal with in this series. And I just want to be honest and say again that these are all subjects that were chosen because these seem to be the topics that are dominating the conversation in our culture right now. And I feel like as Christians that we should be able to and need to be able to give biblical answers to tough questions. We need to know where we stand. And I believe as your pastor, I have the responsibility to equip you to know the answers. That's part of my role as your pastor. So over the next several weeks, we're going to deal with subjects like these. Uh, We're going to deal with the subject of abortion. We're going to ask if it's a moral issue. We're going to deal with racism and we're going to ask, is, the, uh, is there an answer in the Bible? Is there a discussion in the Bible about race? Is there a discussion in the Bible to be had about gender? Do we talk about gender? That's a conversation that's uh, raging in our culture right now. And we want to know, is there something to be said from the Bible? And does it matter to God? We want to deal with the issue of social justice. The Christian, you're going to love this one. I, I added this one this week, just this week. Uh, the Christian and politics. Does the Bible say anything about the Christian and politics? And then we're going to finish the, the, the series by answering the question, how should we live as Christians in the culture we find ourselves in? Now, I want to say a couple of things as we get into this, this series, and I want you to know that this is going to be a different kind of preaching over the next six weeks or so. Now, typically, we'd go to a passage of Scripture, and I just walk you through verse by verse, sometimes word by word, through the passage of Scripture, just try to get exactly what the text says. But over these next six weeks or so, I'm really just going to ask you to come here and let's reason together. Let's use our minds that God has given us. Let's go to God's Word and search out the answers. And let's come to some decisions about what we believe God's will is on these subjects. I also want to give you a couple of disclaimers as I start out uh, this week. And I want you to remember these most of you know me pretty well. I've been here for a while, and I, I think you, you know my heart, but I did want, feel like I needed to say these things. First of all, I want you to know that this series of messages is not motivated by political ideology. It is not. I, I hope that you know me well enough by now that maybe to a fault, I do everything I can, from the pulpit especially, and even in private conversation, to not be political. As a pastor in particular, I feel like it would be foolish of me to be political from the pulpit. I don't feel like that's my calling. I feel like my calling is to be a servant of the Word of God, and so that's what I'm going to do. I've been here for seven years and two months. Can you believe that? Seven years we've been here and two months. I have never in seven years In spite of being here through two presidential elections and the last one, it seemed like everybody had something to say about. I've never addressed politics from the pulpit. 
been through several congressional elections, local elections. I just don't do it. And that's not what this is about. This is not about politics. Secondly, I know that within this congregation, and I know this to be true, I know that within this congregation, there's disagreement on some of these and perhaps all of these issues. I get that. I I completely understand. And I want you to know that I'm going to do my best to be gracious in all of this. And I I have no interest in attacking or making anybody feel bad or, or any of those things. But I do want you to know that that I, I, I want to convince you of a certain point of view. Mainly, I want to convince you about what the Bible says. I want to convince you about what God's view is on things. And I want you to learn to think biblically and consistently about the topics that we're going to cover over the next couple of weeks. And if you find yourself in disagreement with the Bible, my hope is, unapologetically, that you will change your mind. So keep this in mind. If you and I disagree on something, or if any of you in this room disagree on something, there's just a couple of possibilities, right? If you believe A and I believe B, possibility number one is that I'm right, you're wrong. But there's another possibility, and that's that you're right, and I'm wrong. And there's... And there, thank you, Phil. And there's another possibility, and that's that we're both wrong. But we cannot both be right. You get that, right? If we disagree with one another on these subjects, there is a right and there's a wrong. We might, one of us could be right, one of us can be wrong, but we can't both be right. So, so I'm going to argue from God's word that there are some things that are simply right. And I hope that if you're in disagreement with me, I'm going to do my best to just hide behind the Bible and let you deal with God's Word. Number three, I know that some of these issues are incredibly emotional. I I completely get that. Believe me, uh, some of these issues are incredibly emotional topics for me. And I, I want you to know that I'm going to do my very best to not deal with our emotions. You know, our emotions, by the way, let me say this to you. Uh, that you need to understand that your emotions are not the best barometer for which you should measure right and wrong. Your emotions and my emotions are fallen. They're corrupted. Uh, They're depraved. Our emotions, although I believe that emotions are good and godly, I believe that God gives us emotions for certain reasons. I want you to know that, that just because something disturbs you emotionally, that's not a good reason for you to take one side or the other. We want to deal with truth. I want to deal in the topic of truth. And that's really what today's message is about. I just want to start the discussion by starting the discussion about truth. And when I was at seminary, I, I read a book that really influenced me on this issue. And, and uh, it was when I was working at UPS. And one of the things that you had to do when you worked at UPS was get there early, really early, because it was like a first come, first serve on the positions that you could work that night. So if you wanted to work somewhere good, you just got there really early. So sometimes I would leave really obscenely early and I'd take a book with me, and I'd just sit up on the belt on the loading dock, and I would just read a book. And one of the books that I read that really changed my life was a book by a man named Francis Schaeffer called The God Who Is There. And in Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There, he's, he's just basically making the argument that, that some things are true. 
that there, are, that, that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And he always used this strange term all throughout that book and all throughout his life, and he's well known for it, is that anytime he talked about truth, he talked about it in terms of truth and true truth. And what he was getting at when he talked about true truth is that certain things are absolutely true. There are certain things that are objectively true. I think we can agree, can't we, that some things are true. Can we all agree with that? Some things are objectively, absolutely true. Like math. Right, Larry? Two plus two equals four. Oh, Larry, you might have to do a tutoring class around here or something. Two plus two equals four. We can agree on that, right? That's true. If you take water and put it in your freezer and assuming your freezer works and it gets below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, the water will become ice. That's true. Correct? We agree on that. Some things are just true. The Baltimore Orioles are the worst team in Major League Baseball. True. Uh, Now, you know I love the O's, but that's just true. That's objectively true. They stink. You know, and there are some things that are just true. And it's not hard for us all to agree that certain things are true. The problem is, and I need you all to follow out. Really, you've got to put your thinking caps on this morning. The problem isn't that we can agree that, that certain things are true. The problem is that we can come to agreement or we struggle to come to agreement on all objective truth. All objective truth. Like, for instance, we define re, uh, our truth this way. How many of you have ever heard of the correspondence theory of truth? You know what that is? It's not that complicated. You all know this. The correspondence theory of truth is this. And this is how we define objective truth. And that is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. That's what truth is. In other words, truth is what it is. Truth is, if I'm telling the truth, let me say it this way, this will make more sense. If I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling it like it is. That's the correspondence there. If I tell you the truth, if I'm on a witness stand in a courtroom and I'm called upon to tell the truth, then what I'm being called upon to do and what my responsibility to do and hopefully what I will do is I will tell you exactly what it is. I will tell you the truth. So the correspondence theory of truth is just to tell it like it is. But there's a problem with this. And, and please don't go to sleep on me yet. Wait till a little later. But don't do it just now. I see some of you nodding and, and yawning. This is important. I know this isn't a typical sermon, but just follow me here. There's a problem when we say, that we can just tell it like it is, that certain things are true. And I, I want to demonstrate it to you by, by showing you something I have in my pocket. Now, how, how many of you know what that is? Now, Denise has been dreaded. She's looking at me like, oh, no. She knows I would do card tricks at home and drive my family crazy. This is not a card trick. How many of you know what it is, though? It's a playing card. What color is the playing card? It's blue. I say that the playing card is red. Wait, who said I'm wrong? No, see, because for me, the card is red. 
Now you tell me, what color is the card in my hand? Don't, be, don't, don't get smart and say blue and red. <laughs> what color is the card in my hand? Now, but for me, it's blue. Well, my, and this is the point, but, but here's, the, here's what I'm getting at. When we say that truth is that which corresponds to reality, we have to ask the question, who's reality? Because was it true when I had this out of my pocket and I said, what color is it? And you said blue. Is that true? It's true for you. Is it true that it's red? Yes. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, no. My pastor's getting ready to tell me that truth is relative. No, it's not what I'm getting ready to tell you. What I'm getting ready to tell you is that that theory of truth is, is flawed. Because you and I don't have the capability to see things as they really are. We can't really see things as they really are. So as a Christian, what we do is we modify the definition of truth. We don't just say that the truth is that which corresponds to reality. Here's where it's really important. We say that truth is that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. It's a huge statement. That's an earth-shaking statement. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. Only God sees reality in its fullest measure. Only God can see reality from a perfect perspective. So, from God's perspective, when I held up the card, you said it was blue, I said it was red. What would God say? It's both. Because he sees it for what it really is. Now, you have to stop right here for a moment. Just stop right here for a moment. And think about that on a personal level. I mean, is that sinking in yet? That God knows you for what you really are. It is not... How others see us, it's not how I see me. God knows the real you. God knows everything about you even better than you do. God sees you in your fullest measure from a perfect perspective. Now, I'm saying all of that to say that should frighten us almost to death. Almost to the point, the only thing that I could come to when I was thinking about this this week, the only thing that kept coming to my mind was when Isaiah stood in the throne room of God. And suddenly when he came to the realization that as a sinful man, he was exposed before God, what did he do? He fell down on his face and said, woe is me, I'm disintegrating, I'm dying, I'm coming undone. Because for us, when we realize that God really sees us as we are, I can't think of any other thing for me than to say, woe is me. If everything about me is exposed, woe is me. But the flip side of that is that God has given us his own son to live and die in our place. And so in legal terms, when we come to faith in Christ, 
all of that that's in me that God sees, that God knows, that God understands, all of those dark things, those sinful things are taken and placed on Jesus' account at the cross and all of his righteousness is credited to me. And so when God sees me one day standing before him in legal terms, I will be completely justified, free from sin. He'll only see Jesus. That's the gospel. But don't miss that the reason we need Christ is because God sees things from a perfect perspective. And that's why the Bible can say with authority, there is no one good. No, not one. God sees us perfectly. So only God then, listen, only God can define what truth is. I mean, this is important. We, we can't base our truth or define our truth based on our political ideology. You can't do that. You can't say, well, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm an Independent or whatever it is that you are. You can't say that I'm that, and that defines what's true for me. You can't do that. You can't define your, uh, what truth is based on your perspective of the world, your limited perspective. You say, well, I'm just my own person, and I look at things my own way. Well, you're still limited in what you can see. You're still limited in what you can know. You can't define, I've already mentioned this, truth based on your emotions. Your emotions won't work. You can't define truth based on cultural shifts or, or, or public opinion. Only God can define what is true. And that's our starting point. And that's really what what this message is all about. And before we get to any of the difficult subjects that we're going to deal with, we have to answer that question. How can we know that anything's true? Y'all still with me? I know this is not, like I said, normal preaching. It won't all be like this, but, but I want to lay the foundations. This is a big question. Can we know what truth is? Chances are, statistically speaking, you don't believe in absolute truth. Statistically. If we just run the numbers, chances are that most people in this room don't really believe in objective truth. You know, there was a big discussion in the 80s. A man named Alan Bloom wrote a book. I don't know if any of you ever read this book or to have any reason to read this book, but it shook the academic world, and it was called The Closing of the American Mind. Anybody ever heard of that book? And his argument was, y'all take notes and look these things up. They're worth more time than watching Desperate Housewives or, or you know, like read, read a good book. But he, he, he wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And he began the argument by saying, this was a guy who was a professor in a higher institution in a university, and he began this book by basically putting out the premise that in, in the late 1980s, about 90% of the incoming freshmen at, higher learn, at institutions of higher learning, at America's top universities, about 90% of the incoming freshmen already believed that there was no such thing as objective truth when they got there. And his argument was, that rather than fixing that, rather than fixing that in their minds, rather than repairing the damage that the culture had done, that it was more likely that when they left the institution of higher learning, they would be even more convinced that there is no such thing as absolute truth. 
And then it left the universities behind and, and started to creep into our culture. It's not just a, a, a problem in academia. Over the past 30 years, the idea of objective truth has, has moved beyond those walls. And, and listen to these numbers. A recent uh, Barna study found that 57% of Americans, almost 6 in 10 of Americans, now agree with this statement. Listen to this statement. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. 60%. And what's even more concerning is that 74% of millennials agree with that statement. And I'm not picking on millennials, but what's concerning is that the millennials are the ones who are now shaping our culture. And so 75, 74% of them agree with the statement that whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. Another study said that in general, only one in three people in America now, 33% of people in America now believe that there's anything that's morally true. I mean, these numbers ought to make you real, uh, real quickly understand what's going on at large in our culture. When you look around and when you watch the news and when you think to yourself, well, how can this be? How can things be happening like this? How can our culture be going in this direction? Well, that's pretty easy to understand when we know that six out of ten people say the only thing you can know is what's best for you. Or when 66% of the people in our country say that there's no such thing as absolute moral truth, it's easy then to see why things are the way they are. Now, why is this all important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. One reason is that now, for those of us, myself included, I won't speak for you, but myself included, for those of us who do believe that there is such a thing as objective, absolute truth, our culture is beginning to think that we're just backwards, intolerant, or maybe even worse. David Samuels, an editor for the New York Times, wrote this. He wrote, it is a shared, if unspoken, premise of the world that most of us inhabit. That absolutes do not exist. And that people who claim to have found them are crazy. That's the New York Times. If you believe in absolutes, you're crazy. And why is that important? Well, I want truth. And I I want answers that are true. I want true answers. And by the way, I'd like to just say that we all believe in absolute truth. If I stand you on train tracks in Woodbine, and you hear the train coming, and you see the train coming, and I ask you, what's going to happen to you if you stay on those tracks? You're going to give me some absolute truth objective truth. And you're probably going to believe it enough to get off the tracks. We all believe in truth. And I want true answers. I want a true answer to this question. Is abortion morally wrong? I want a true answer to the, to the question, is racism a sin? I want true answers to the, the questions about gender. Is gender important to God? I want a true answer to to the question, is the rising concern in America with social justice in harmony or in conflict with the Bible? I want true answers to how a Christian should engage in in the political landscape. I want true answers. 
And, and I believe that we can have true answers because I believe in objective truth. And if you don't believe in objective truth, then you're in trouble. But, but let's just talk for, about objective truth again for, for another moment, and then we'll, we'll get to the Bible passage. I know this is the longest introduction I've ever given you to get to a Bible passage. I promise I'm not going to preach a long sermon about the Bible passage, but I just want to show you something. I just want us to think about how we know anything is true. How do we know anything is true? Who gets to define what is true? Is it you? Is it me? Who gets to define? I think the only appropriate answer to that question is God. Now, now you're standing at a crossroad, aren't you? I mean, we're, now you don't have to agree with that statement, but nonetheless, you're at a crossroad. We're all standing at a crossroad. Who will define truth in your life? Will you? Will the news anchors you watch daily, the commentators, the newspapers, your emotions, the culture, who will define your truth? We're at a crossroads. Or will we allow God to define what's true? Now, look at John 18. Verse 33. And here we have Jesus already having been arrested. Already on trial. Going through His various stages before He's delivered up to be crucified. And, and here we have Him standing before Pilate. The Roman governor, the one who's, who's tasked with keeping Roman authority and rule over Jerusalem and that province. And, and in verse 33, it says that Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate, I think, really just wants to get to the bottom of what's going on. I don't think that Pilate cares about who Jesus is. I don't think that Pilate cares necessarily about Jesus from a theological perspective. What Pilate cares about at this moment is if there's an uprising in this city that I'm responsible for, I'm going to lose my position and possibly lose my life. He just wants to get to the bottom of things. So he says, are you the king of the Jews? And I love the way that Jesus answers him in verse 34, where Jesus answers and says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it? To you about me. Understand what Jesus said just there. Pilate says, All right, guy, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Who wants to know? <laughs> I love that. I imagine that Pilate's head nearly exploded in that moment. There's all this unrest, this guy, this guy standing before me says, are you a king of the Jews? And he says, well, who wants to know? Is it you or them? Who wants to really know? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? You're a nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He just wants to get to the bottom of it. 
And Jesus sort of just ignores him altogether, goes back to the first question and says, in verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered or might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered and said, You say rightly that I am a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate, I think in one of the moments of absolute frustration, one of the deepest and most frustrating moments in human history looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? I mean, I think you have a guy here who just, he doesn't know what to think anymore. He can't figure out what truth is. The Jews seem to have a story. Everybody seems to have a story. His own wife is disturbed over this whole thing. And he says, what is truth? But he asked the wrong question, didn't he? He asked the wrong question. What Pilate should have asked, instead of saying, what is truth? The correct question would have been, who is truth? And had he asked that question, he would have received the same answer that Jesus gave his disciples in John 14. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We want truth because we believe there is such a thing as truth. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, The only appropriate place to look is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, and all of His will revealed to us and all of His Word. And so listen to what I'm about to say, and then we're going to end. In fact, uh, our worship team can come back up as I'm closing this down. Because this is really important. And if you're a note taker, if you're a person who takes notes and and, and you're, you've got your notebook opened up or your Bible opened up and you're getting ready for this series, I want you to not stop taking notes. Take this down. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the question of truth in your life is a lordship issue. The question of truth in your life is an issue of who is Lord of your life. When when we talk about these subjects moving forward, you're going to have to confront the question of who's in control in your life. Who is Lord? Who defines what you believe about difficult issues? And so these are not issues, and I want you to hear this from my heart as your pastor. Not as a guy who has the pulpit and gets to say whatever he wants. 
I want you to hear this from my heart as somebody who cares about you deeply, cares about you spiritually, and cares about your eternity. I want you to know that when we deal with these issues, this is about lordship. Is Jesus Lord of your life? And ultimately, as we approach each of these subjects, you're going to have to ask yourself on the question of abortion, is Jesus Lord of your life? On the question of racism and gender and social justice, is Jesus Lord of your life? On the question of politics and how we engage with one another in that sphere and with our culture, is Jesus Lord of your life? Because ultimately, you will only come to one of two conclusions. Either I will submit to God's word and God's will, or I won't. And I want you to hear this again from my heart for you. That if you will not submit and have Jesus as Lord, the Bible teaches that you cannot have Jesus as Savior. If Jesus isn't Lord of your life, He's not Savior of your life. The two come together at the same place, at the same time in your heart.